This is Look West, a podcast from the Assembly Democrats. This is the greatest country in the world where somebody that was deported like me can stand here before you due to the sacrifice of my parents and stand as the Assemblywoman for the 48th Assembly District. I was five years old when uh, we left El Salvador, which is where I was born, during uh, a really horrible civil war. I think it's the story of millions of Mm -hmm. Americans across this country that call this place home. Not only are my sister and I teachers, we're uh, elected officials, my other sister works for the city of Carson. My, my brother works in Kansas, he lives in Kansas, and now my little brother is a member of the U.S. Army. We are contributing members of society, just like everybody else. When we talk about DACA recipients, it's not just the valedictorian or the, the young person going to like this prestigious college. Folks that are mechanics and waiters and bartenders and have everyday jobs are equally as important and their lives are equally as important. When we think about what this future of the country looks like, people do look west and they look to California to lead. And as California goes, so does the nation. Hello and welcome to Look West. My name is Pablo Espinosa and on this episode of Look West, we're joined by assembly members Wendy Carrillo and Blanca Rubio, both of Los Angeles. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Why don't we start just by you know, saying you know, who, who you are. I am Blanca Rubio. I am the representative for the 48th Assembly District from the East San Gabriel Valley, which is about 22 miles east of downtown LA. So I cover the communities of Glendora, Azusa, Baldwin Park, uh, Irwindale, Covina, West Covina, Duarte, uh, 39% of El Monte, uh, two streets in Monrovia, 400 houses in Arcadia. So my district is very, uh, a little bit cut up, but it's the East San Gabriel Valley. And uh, let's see, I have two children. I have a nine-year-old and a 10-year-old that keep me busy. Uh, That's on my spare time. And I spend a lot of time in the the capital now, about 10 to 12-hour days, which is pretty average on a normal week. And uh, it's been an amazing journey since I was elected in 2016. Ms. Carrillo. Well, uh, thank you for the invitation. Um, I'm the newest assembly member here, getting to know uh, my fellow colleagues and uh, Sacramento. Mm -hmm. Was recently elected on December 5th. I represent the 51st Assembly District, which includes all of Northeast LA, the communities of Eagle Rock, Mount Washington, Highland Park, Chinatown, El Sereno, Lincoln Heights, Echo Park, Silver Lake, and then going back to the east side, City Terrace where I grew up, El Sereno where I live, and uh, all of unincorporated East LA. It includes some of the most historic neighborhoods and what we consider um, the, 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 the inner city of Los Angeles. Um, I'm the oldest of five daughters. I set the bar really high. Five daughters. <laughs> um, my, uh, my sisters um, are all in college right now. Uh, two are at Cal State LA, one's finishing her graduate degree where I, where I also went for undergrad. First generation American, first one in my family to achieve the American dream, first one to be able to vote, first one to go to college, first one to receive a graduate degree, first one to run for office, get elected, be here. Um, no kids, and uh, but I do have a dog that I miss very much. What's his uh, name? Her name is Lulu. She's a little Maltese poodle. 
um, that stays with my sister when, when I'm here in Sacramento, and I'm hoping to be able to figure out a way to bring her up with me. So you said that uh, first to achieve the American dream. Uh, mm-hmm. What is the American dream? Well, I, well, it's different for everyone, right? But I think um, my parents are immigrants to this country. I immigrated to this country. But they worked relentlessly hard to make sure that myself and my sisters had a roof over our head, that we had uh, food on the table, that we were um, given back to our community, that we were going to school. Education was a big part of our upbringing to make sure that there was an equalizer to get out of poverty. And so uh, I work really hard to make sure that their struggles and their sacrifices were worth it. And to be able to, much like Assemblymember Rubio, who she and I share a very similar story, in that everything that our parents did to make sure that we were successful, we are now um, living examples of what that looks like when immigrant Latino families actually take power and ownership of who we are in our city, in our state, and in our country, and the way that we move our family forward. So talking about education, I know you said that your parents had it ingrained in your mind and your heart and your soul that education was the way to move forward. You know, so much so that later you became a school board member, a, a, a teacher. teacher. Mm-hmm. Um, tell me a little bit about the value of education, what your parents said. and Well, part of it, I, I believe, um, for me, uh, I was uh, born in Mexico in Juarez and came to the United States when I was six the first time. We went to a little town called Duini, Texas. We actually had to Google it because I was thinking that my parents were mispronouncing the name of the city. Um, but uh, my dad was a bracero. Um, he's been in and out of the country since he was 19. My dad will be 78 this year. Um, but he came through the bracero program first. But after the program ended, he continued to cross the border to make sure that um, he'd send money back to us. Um, when I was six, I'm the oldest of five now. There was four of us for a very long time. Um, I'm the oldest. I have uh, my sister, Susan, who's also a teacher and is also an elected official. Um, And my brother are twins. And then uh, my younger sister, Sylvia. So Susan, uh, Robert, and I were born in Mexico. My younger sister, Sylvia, was born in El Paso through the the going back and forth. Um, But anyway, so we ended up in uh, Weenie, Texas, which is on the border of Louisiana and Texas in the Port Arthur area. In, back in the early, it was probably 75, and uh, we went to Texas, and the, the demographics were very different than they are in California, and so we kind of stuck out like a sore thumb. Uh, but my dad was working. He was in construction. He was building bridges at the time, and uh, we were in school, and education, again, was you know really important for them. Uh, but we spent a little time in Texas. We were caught by, at the time, INS. It's ICE now, but it was INS then. And were deported. We went, went back to Juarez. Uh, how old were you? I was six years old. I was six. Um, the twins were five, and my younger sister, Sylvia, was two, I believe. Um, and so we were deported back to Juarez. And um, the situation in Juarez, as, as it still is, is probably one of the, the most dangerous cities in in Mexico because of the whole drug cartels. And so my parents were determined not to have us grow up there. Uh, and I remember, the only thing I remember is when we, we came back to, to the United States, I came under, my aunt was uh, my mom's sister. She did have passports and she had kids that were the same age as we were. So I passed, I crossed the border as Angelica Soto. 
Um, I was born uh, December 5th, 1968. Why Angelica Soto? Because that was her, her, her daughter that was almost my age, oh. and so they made us memorize um, their, their names just because if, in case we were questioned at the border, we needed to know so, that I wasn't Blanca, I was Angelica at the time. So, Carillo, I don't know if you know <laughs> that um, this story actually, Ms. Rubio said it on the floor. Yeah. When not that many people knew. And, and the colleagues, especially our, our, our Republican colleagues, were, you know, they look at us like, or they look at the immigrants as those people, those people over there, not realizing that, you know, those people are us sitting next to them on a daily basis. Uh, so it was an interesting time. But um, anyway, so we came to California. I remember it was uh, the day Elvis died is when we arrived in L.A. So we came through uh, on the train. But uh, so I had a different name, my well, when we crossed the border and my brother and my sister. The irony of this is that uh, my younger sister, Sylvia, was actually the only one born in, in the United States. So my aunt didn't have any kids her age. And so my mom literally crossed the river with Sylvia in her arms. And Sylvia was the only U.S. citizen uh, from from the family. And so we crossed the border somehow. That's I don't even remember. I just remember my, my mom was on the train with us. And so we, we got on the train, uh, got to Union Station the day Elvis died, um, August uh, 16th, 1977, is when we arrived in the, back in uh, California. My dad had come a few months before. Uh, we stayed with an aunt for a little bit, and then we found an apartment in downtown LA, the Pico Union area. Ms. Carrillo, when, when you're listening, you know, you're, I, I see your eyes are very focused on her, and uh, it's your story as well. I think it's the story of millions of mm -hmm. Americans across this country that call this place home. And these stories are the stories that mm -hmm. need to be told and normalized. We need to tell our stories and be proud of where we come from and that narrative so that we are able to, to fully articulate and normalize the experiences of people. And that these experiences are not unique in right. any way. How old were you when you first came as, uh, as an undocumented yeah, child I was, as well? Yeah, uh, I was five years old when uh, we left El Salvador, which is where I was born, during uh, a really horrible civil war. And there is a difference between um, migration due to economic opportunity and migration through acts of war and violence. And so during that time, the United States was heavily involved in the wars in Central America, not only in El Salvador, but in Honduras. And decided to give only a certain percentage of people refugee and asylum status. And so the rest were kind of, you know, figure it out. <laughs> and so my mom, I think about this story now, my mom was 21 years old when she decided that she would come to the U.S. and risk uh, coming to a new country without legal status. Just to remind listeners, you're listening to Look West. This is a podcast from the Assembly Democrats. And you were just listening to Assemblymember Wendy Carrillo, and also joining us is Assemblymember Blanca Rubio, and we're talking about their lives, their background, immigration, their American dream. And uh, when you were talking about your mom, I have a picture here for you, and obviously our listeners cannot see it, but can you describe that picture? Tell me what you see. You came very prepared, Pablo. <laughs> <laughs> so this photo is, um, is a photo of El Salvador at a birthday party. I thought for the longest time that this was my birthday party, but it wasn't. <laughs> this, was birthday. My, this was my aunt's uh, 15th birthday, and I was one year one years old. 
and my mom had given me a doll and she's she's uh, I'm on I'm on top of a table and she's holding me and she's wearing a, a beautiful blue dress and I'm wearing a yellow dress with ribbons and I'm holding my doll that has a, a pink dress and it's one of the last photos that I have of my mother before she came to the US and I grew up with my grandparents in El Salvador while she like many other women who come to the US and came to the US during that time she came to work and to save money and to be able to send for us to and that's back. a picture of a young girl and I don't mean you I mean your mom my mom was 21 in this photo and I think about what I was doing when I was 21 years old and would I have made the decisions that she made would I have risked my life would I have risked my family would I have risked my daughter's life you know in an effort to escape a civil war where it, I mean, if you follow the if you follow Latin American politics, you know that the civil war in El Salvador lasted more than ten years. How many years, I should say, were you apart from your mother? About four. So, from what age to what age? About from one to five. Yeah. Ms. Yeah. Rubio, can you can you imagine? I can't being I can't. away from your children. There's no way. I mean, uh, I shared with you that I have a ten-year-old and a nine-year-old, mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, the typical life of an assembly member is we're here four days a week. We're here uh, Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. We go home on Thursdays and then we spend the rest of the week uh, uh, within our districts. And most assembly members, the predominantly male, um, leave their families behind. And there's no way that I can, you know, be without my children. So my children actually are up here and I still have the same routine. I go home on Thursday nights and they go home on Fridays. But even last night, I was like, I don't know what I would do if I have to leave my kids only for a week. So I can't even imagine having to be left behind um, for, for you um, for four years, but then your mother, your mother not only is worried about, you know, trying to find a job and, and trying to survive that journey, mm -hmm. but yet knowing that um, your, her child was behind, there's no way. I can't even leave my kids for four days. Uh, let alone, you know, for, for years at a time. And you mentioned that this is the typical story of the American, you know, the, the, the immigrant, and which is true when I was running for assembly, you get a consultant and they want, you know, the first thing they say is, what's your story? And I was like, I've got no story. They're like, mm -hmm. come on, there's a story behind there. And I was like, I don't have a story. And they're like, okay, well, tell us about, you know, your life. And I started telling them about being deported and an immigrant, and she's all, that's your story. And I said, oh, well, all of the people in my neighborhood have the same story. So for me, it wasn't a story. It was all, you know, my, my next door neighbor, my, my friends at school, they all have the same story. So for me, it wasn't unusual. It wasn't this extraordinary story because everybody around me had the same story. But that's, that's the thing right there, right? Mm -hmm. Is that we have these lived experiences yes. that for so long have we been uh, socialized to think that they are not important mm -hmm. and that they don't have significance when it's quite the contrary like when you when you tell your story when I share my story and you see the people in our communities right. of who we represent there's a sense of pride and ownership of we can too and like our community is coming up and we will have a diverse representation at the table because it's very unique to come from these neighborhoods and have these stories and be able to be and to have a seat at the table where decisions are being made about people in our community, which hasn't been the case for so long. I think the rise of Latino politics in California is fairly new. It's only a few decades old. And now we're seeing the rise of immigrant populations with the rise of uh, undocumented communities and um, here to stay and unafraid, undocumented and unafraid, which is a, fr a phrase that 
uh, young dreamers across the nation like are took hold and have power. There's over 800,000 DACA recipients across our country, 200,000 which live here in California, many in Assemblymember Rubio's district and my own. And so we have this story right. of what it means to be undocumented but have the opportunity to have a pathway to residency and citizenship that now mm. allows us to have here and be real advocates with real lived experiences on what this really looks like from another point of view. But it also goes back to your uh, question earlier about education. Um, I, uh, through the years, you know, I, I have a bachelor's degree in business, a master's in education, but I didn't feel any smarter because of those documents, because I got that, that piece of paper, because I still felt the same. I think once I received my degrees, then I, that's where the power came in, that I was like, oh, now but I to have... To get those degrees, yes. it, it was a struggle because, and, and you were not alone, because my wife heard the same thing from her counselor when yes. she wanted to get those college prep classes. And, and what, what were you told? Well, what, so, what, what, I don't know if you were told the same thing, but... So I went to school, I shared with you that I grew up in the Pico Union area, so I went to Union Avenue Elementary School, Virgil Junior High and Belmont High School. And my sister Susan and I are 14 months apart, and so, so we were both, um, and we'll talk about my brother later because that's a different story, but um, so Susan and I uh, went to the counselor and said, hey, we want to go to college. And the counselor says, oh, honey, but you're just going to get pregnant and get married, and <laughs> you should just take home ec. And but you, you've heard stories like that. Yeah. I mean, of that's... Of course. I mean, it's... Typical. It's typical. Typical yeah. of, you know, uh, uh, you know just the, that that uh, perception about immigrants that were only here to work and to, you know, you name it, to clean houses, to blah, 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 blah. But it's, it's like a, it's, even in community college, when I was, when I was in community college, um, We I shared the alma mater. I went to uh, East Los Angeles College, too. Go Huskies. Yeah. Um, somebody, ha but I took a class at another, at another community college because uh, um, this class wasn't offered at ELAC, so I took it somewhere else. And I went to go <coughs> talk to a counselor and I really wanted to go to USC. I wanted to transfer to mm -hmm. USC. That was my dream school. And this counselor told me, um, you know, I just don't think that mm -hmm. you're going to get in. I think that you should really aim for a Cal State. And uh, it was really demoralizing. Um, and I actually ended up going to Cal State LA, which was the best experience I could ever had. And I'm really thankful um, to my professors that really helped me get to where I needed to be. But she didn't know me. I was 19 mm -hmm. years old at the time. I didn't transfer until I was 21. But the fact that you are okay with telling, that somebody was okay with telling a young person that you weren't good enough to go somewhere uh, is really demoralizing and I think uh, something that happens quite often. But it's, it reminds me a lot, and I bring that example because it reminds me a lot of my congressional race. Someone told me, and I'll never forget, why do you want to run for Congress? It's so big, Wendy. You're just going to get lost amid all these you. voices, mm -hmm. right? You should run for something smaller, like maybe school board, or just get your feet wet and see if you even like it. And that reminded me a lot of the conversation of education. Why USC? Why Harvard? Why right. not this other school? Because and you're not. You, you was, don't belong in those schools. Right. It was mm -hmm. like, you're not good enough. Mm -hmm. You're not ready. You... There's other people, and it's like, I think we're in a place right now where people are fed up and that the politics as usual doesn't work anymore. And so you need people with uh, different experiences 
to, uh, to change the way that government works and hopefully inspire a new generation but of folks to run and win. I think that as, as a group, I think the Latino community, uh, we always knew that education was the key, but I think the younger, um, uh, the millennials, if you will, or even just the younger generations finally got it that this is the key to our success is education. I saw that on, I was on a school board for 13 years and, and I know I'm not knocking any other uh, uh, ethnicity, but the valedictorian and the salutatorian were not Latinos um, for very many years. And the last five years of my school board uh, tenure, three out of the four were Latinos, which I saw as a huge shift in in the perception of being educated. A lot of the kids, you know, started seeing it like, started getting it and more so thinking, this is pretty cool, we can do this. And so once the, the older sibling did it, then the, you know, then the, the next uh, sibling did it. And you so, lead it, the way. yeah, leading the way and you started catching this, this fire about, hey, you can do it too. And I was also the first one um, to go to school and graduate and uh, when I became a teacher, my sister Susan um, said, I want to be a teacher too, and said, well, let's do this. And so she <laughs> went, literally is a carbon copy um, from my experience. So both went to Belmont High School, we both went to East Los Angeles College, we both went to APU. She got a different degree though, her undergrad is in human development, and then I went and got my, my master's, and she, she was like, well, if you're getting it, I'm getting it too. <laughs> and so she has a master's in education, I became a teacher, she became a teacher. I was, I became a citizen in 1994 and in 1997 was elected to my very first office. Right. And a few years later, Susan's like, well, if you can do it, you know, <laughs> then you I'm doing it too. And so, so it also took us to pave the way for, mm -hmm. for our siblings. But once that door was kicked open, I think the possibilities for the, the kids behind us, whether it be our siblings or not, they see, and uh, Assemblymember Carrillo is correct, they see the possibilities because now we're out there speaking to these groups and saying, we can do it. Yeah, we were wanna, in the same situation as you I want to talk about those kids. And uh, You're listening to Look West, a podcast from the Assembly Democrats, and you were just listening to Assemblymember Blanca Rubio, and joining us also is Assemblymember uh, Wendy Carrillo. And we have those dreamers. Earlier on, Ms. Carrillo, you were talking about the stories need to be normalized. Mm -hmm. What I find that amazing and super cool is that it was teenagers that they decided to they were fed up and they were going to normalize their stories. They were going to say we're undocumented and we're not going and we're, we're here to afraid. stay. Mm -hmm. We're unafraid. Um, in, a, in a way, they kind of opened the door for assembly members like yourselves mm -hmm. to stand up on the floor like yes. you did, Ms. Rubio, and say I, I was undocumented and deported. And what do you think about that, Ms. Carrillo? Well, when I, um, when I ran for the congressional seat, and it seems like so long ago, but it was really just less than a year ago. Um, I was very bold and unapologetic in the way that I told my story. And what was interesting is that my core group of close friends know my story, but it wasn't ever anything that I uh, shared in public. One, because it's very personal, very private. And it also involves not just only me, but the story of my mother as well and the story of my family. And so Protection is always very important, but um, I decided to tell it, and in doing so, uh, told a national story about this current moment in our nation's history. And 
got the ire of the right wing and uh, the former grandmaster of the Ku Klux Klan who came after me on social media and in doing so got a whole bunch of other people to um, threaten us and and just to the point where uh, we had to get law enforcement involved. Mm -hmm. And people look at that and say, how is that even happening in Los Angeles and at the time in Boyle Heights? And like, this is very real. And the fact that we, that I as a candidate at the time had to have conversations about security with my team, uh, with my volunteers. We, I, I'm a very avid social media user. So I'm like, oh, I'm, we're here at the campaign office, come join us. And you check in and it tells you where you're at mm -hmm. and where your office is and to have a moment where you think, is this even safe? That was very real. And so while we didn't win the congressional race, I think that what we showed is the possibility of what happens when you think differently and when you tell that story publicly and when you are running a national campaign. And, and this was obviously during uh, Trump and his attack on immigrants and Muslims and women and undocumented communi communities and LGBTQ folks and every mar marginalized group that you can think of. And when we're boldly saying no human being is illegal, that love, love is love, that um, women's rights are human rights. And so it's these national themes actually impact people. And I think, you know, I... They're not just talking points. They're not just talking points. They're real lived experience, ex exactly. And so, look, I've been, I, I've been a journalist for the past 12 years, and I started my career uh, in radio, actually uh, talking with the young dreamers at the UCLA Labor Center in Los Angeles, a young woman named Tam Tran, who um, unfortunately lost her life in the fight to pass the DREAM Act, which should have passed in 2001. And then 9-11 happened, and all of that was, you know, uh, shelved. No one ever talked about it again. But Tam was a young woman who was of Vietnamese origin, whose family also escaped the war in Vietnam, and was without country for a long time. And so she was a dreamer here and was one of the, the, the most um, bravest people I've ever met and was uh, advocating in, in D.C. to Congress, testified before Congress on her story when this wasn't a, um, a national conversation and unfortunately had a, a really bad accident and lost her life. And, and so this is beyond a Latino narrative. Mm -hmm. There are undocumented young people from all over the world in this country, and there are undocumented people in general from all over the world. And so when we talk about comprehensive immigration reform, it's more than just the Latino community. And we can't continue to just have these isolated conversations. We need to bring everybody into the conversation. I have friends that are Canadian and a French uh, friend who is undocumented, but nobody talks about that not all undocumented uh, people um, are brown or black <laughs> or, you know, they're blonde yeah. and blue-eyed, uh, undocumented. There are, there are a lot of, of Irish undocumented yes. people in Boston. Yeah. And, and yeah. so, and, and um, yeah. I think your story about the, the KKK is interesting because I didn't know that, that, that you were going through that. But mm -hmm. um, we had a town hall for Javier Becerra last year with um, Assemblymember um, Medina Rodriguez, uh, Gomez Reyes and Senator Leva, and so we all went to Chino um, to this town hall. And I'm thinking, yay, you know, we're, we're, you know, talking about what's happening and really excited about it. 
and I saw the, the assembly sergeants over there and they are allowed to carry weapons and I was shocked to see that. I was like, why are you guys here? I'm, you know, I still feel like a normal person so I didn't think I needed any protection because I was like, well, I'm just, you know, normal here. So we went and we had the, the Trumpsters heckling and, you know, just really uh, uh, bad-mouthing us and, you know, telling us to go back to our countries. And so I don't know what came over me, but I was uh, empowered, I guess. <laughs> and I got up and I was like, you know what? I, they, it took them about, I don't know, three minutes to quiet down. I'm like, hey, what happened to free speech? You know, thank you, but I want to speak as well. And so I got up and I said, oh, you know, I just want to tell you that this is the greatest country in the world. And let me tell you why this is the greatest country in the world. And of course, they're clapping, right? I said, because, you know, I was undocumented and, and uh, uh, I was deported. And here I am. I have an office in that big white building in the middle of the park in Sacramento. And only in a country like this can somebody like me have this. Well, I started getting heckled and heckled and go back to your country. And I mean, it was just they had to break up the, the, the town hall because it was just got out of control. So I left and, you know, on social media, on Facebook, I started reading. I, I promised I wouldn't read, but then I was doing it anyway, <laughs> you know, because you still want to know. But so, so I started reading. And one of the comments on there was, um, if you don't believe that illegals take the jobs of, of, uh, of real Americans, look at Blanca Rubio. She took the job of a real American. And to your point, as if they're handing out assembly seats you know, if you just line up, they'll hand yeah. you the assembly it's seat. It's an application that you fill out. Right. And you have and you an just, interview and then, and you then get they the just, job. You get the yeah. job. And so it felt like that. They were like, oh, you know, she took the job of a real American. First of all, as Assemblymember Carrillo can uh, attest to, because she just came off of a, you know, of a campaign, this is not no easy task. Uh, to run for these positions is just incredible. Um, it's time, dedication. Uh, a coalition of folks of your your friends and family and you put your life on hold and you have to raise so much money to be able to even be competitive and it really there's a saying I'm sure that Assemblymember Rubio knows this as well like you you learn who your friends are when you decide to run for office because then then you truly either the folks that you think would support you don't and then all of a sudden the folks you never even knew right. are inspired by your journey your story your vision for the district, for our state, that believe right. in, that in a better this. America. And all of a sudden, you earn, you earn the support, and you run, and you win. Right. And then, and then how many friends do you have now? Oh, everyone is my best <laughs> yeah, friend now. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but, but to the point that it's not an easy thing to do. And so for, for, for that group to say that, you know, I took some, some, the job of a real American was was interesting an interest an interesting comment because again it's so difficult to 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 run and mm -hmm. I have I was a school teacher at the time uh, single mom so I didn't really have the luxury of taking any time off because I still had to put food on the table for my ten and my nine year old at the time um, seven and eight I believe or six and seven and and for us to be able to do something like this it's incredible when I brought my parents up for for the swearing in, my dad in Spanish is looking at the Capitol and he says, Nunca me imaginé que iba a estar aquí en Sacramento y mucho menos bajo estas circunstancias. Yeah, he never you know, thought that he was going to arrive in Sacramento, especially under the circumstances of having 
his eldest daughter be an yes. assembly member. And my, my sister Susan Rubio is uh, running for Senate. And so if we, you know, follow our path, you will have two Rubios in 2019. <laughs> You're going to have two on, you know, she'll be the third one, uh, Wendy, the third uh, uh, undocumented right. uh, uh, legislator in the state of California. But my parents, just to see them, um, and so humble. My mom still is semi-retired, but she's a housekeeper. My dad was a laborer for years, you know, back and forth, like I said, um, you know, doing odd jobs. He ended up working at a carpet manufacturing company for 30 years and is retired now. But for them to, you know, to even imagine that their kids, that their sacrifice, I mean, my dad, again, since he was 19, uh, back and uh, back and forth in and out of the country. Even now, when we go to Tijuana, we we drive, and I always have to drive because my dad starts shaking, and we always get pulled over because they think there's something wrong. And I'm like, Papi, pero si ya ciudadano, dice, ay, mija, tanto tanto año de mojado que es la costumbre. And you know, that's what he says. And my dad like literally just uh, shakes and just gets really that's nervous. True. But I think you talk about trauma. Yes. That's the real issue. It's like there is a lot of trauma in our communities when it comes to like the immigrant experience and the journeys of people who are here. And so it, it exceeds the, again, the Latino narrative of like, uh, and includes a variety of folks that, whether it's refugees from the Mediterranean who are uh, risking their lives crossing the, the Mediterranean Sea, whether it's uh, unaccompanied minors, whether it's folks that are jumping on uh, uh, what is the train called, El Monstro, the, the train that, um, that, that people are losing their limbs on because they're, they're escaping uh, whatever poverty conditions they're in. So these stories of trauma, uh, these stories of, of you know, where, who we are, where we come from, it's also part of our DNA. And there's been studies, even within the black community, there have been studies that showcase that trauma is in our DNA. And so when you, uh, if you are a descendant, of slaves, then there is a, a real trauma in your DNA of what your ancestors have lived through, which is why we have the conditions in which we uh, have today, which there's a lot of uh, tension, racial tension, because we haven't truly healed from that. For well, immig- we're ne- never going to heal if we have a president that's right. uh, left and right bashing you know, all of the different communities that don't look like him because the communities that do look like him, even though they're undocumented, he makes no mention of. There's a lot of PTSD right now with uh, undocumented students who trusted in their government mm-hmm. to be able to receive DACA and be able to work and go to school or join the military who are now facing deportation. TPS recipients who have built a life here in, in the United States, who have families, who have mm-hmm. businesses, who have children, who may be detained and removed from this country. Like that is a real fear that people are living with every day. There's a lot of uh, suicide attempts from young people that don't know what to do with their lives. And this is all things that as, as, as leaders, like we can address. And I think that we bring a very different perspective on how we bring policy and legislation that impacts people. And that at the end of the day, does good. And so I think that we wanna be the, the folks with the white hats. Right. But there's a lot that we need to fight alongside so that we actually improve the conditions of how people well, live. And, and I keep talking about my kids, 10 and 9 year old. Um, they're, they're kind of like, you know, all the, the doctors, kids know everything about medicine. Lawyers, kids know everything about law. So my kids are very, very uh, uh, immersed in you know, politics because because of me and my sister. And so when when uh, Trump was elected, um, my kids were devastated. I, I, 
I have a video of them when they were just bawling and crying, screaming, crying about what was happening. And I, you know, I tried to reassure them. I said, you know, are you okay? And they're like, Mama, Mama, is, is he going to send you back? You know, is he going to send Grandma and Grandpa back? And mm. my daughter kept saying, Mama, but there's a lot of kids in my classroom that, that are born in Mexico. What's going to happen to them? And so, so I thought, you know, that we can shield them from, from all of this. And in reality, we can't. The kids knew the, the impact that it was going to have on their daily lives with their friends, with their neighbors. And, you know, unfortunately, one of my neighbors in Baldwin Park just last week um, was picked up by, by ICE. And I'm trying to do everything that I can through the Speaker's office, through um, the Congress, uh, my Congresswoman, to try and get him out. But I hadn't told him anything. And so we went home this weekend. And the girls, there's, there's three little girls that play with my kids. And, and the girls came over and they told my daughter. My daughter was so mad at me. She says, Mama, why didn't you tell me? And I said, Honey, it wasn't my t story to tell. You know, if the girls wanted to tell you what was happening with their dad, they needed to tell you. Um, and she was like, but mama, you told me, you told me that now that you're in the assembly that you could help. You're listening to part of, uh, Look West as a podcast from the Assembly Democrats. We're having a wonderful conversation about immigration, the American dream uh, with assembly members, Blanca Rubio and Wendy Carrillo. Uh, you, you were talking earlier about social media, both of you. And you know, last night uh, I got into, you know, into it with somebody because it was talking about, well, just, all they have to do is just become legal. Yeah, like and, there's a line you know, somewhere. Exactly. And, line? and, and I was like, well, you know, DACA recipients have, especially now after, you know, what the administration did, have no path to legalization. And, mm -hmm. and, but there's, there's no conversation that can possibly happen with ignorance. People well, don't understand that it's not just become legal. Well, and that's the thing, though. I, I worked in Fontana and uh, for a long time, you know, there was an active KKK group in Fontana. Um, I haven't heard of them now, but a lot of my colleagues uh, were from the area and under the impression um, that it was just, why don't you just get in line? And I made a deal with my colleagues, my two partner teachers, I was teaching fourth grade, and I said, look, you can ask me anything, even if you think it's racist, even if you think it's, you know, uh, 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 just whatever it may be, ask me anything and I will answer you because I want you to have the answer from me rather than whatever media you're getting it from. And so the first question was like, why don't they just get in line? I said, Melanie, there's no line. It's not like the DMV because let me tell you, if it was like there was a line, they would sit there for days to make sure that they would get that, that piece of paper that they saw. We all wanted, right? And so it's not like oh, just get in line, there is no line. Mm. And, and that's the part that folks don't understand, that there is no line. Well, why don't they go out of the country and get in line over there? Well, But the line, the line that you're referring to is like the legal process. Right. So TPS recipients, for example, who are Salvadorian TPS recipients and many others who have uh, come from different countries who are t temporary protective status recipients, uh, are not al are not legally allowed to apply for residency or citizenship because the law has not been changed. So for folks thinking right now, well, why haven't they applied for legal status? Why are they why are they here 20 years and haven't applied? Well, the answer is simple. Congress has not passed legislation that allows for TPS recipients to actually apply for residency or citizenship. It is a flawed system that has yet to be fixed. Same thing for DACA recipients. DACA is only a preliminary step for residency and citizenship, and we haven't fully addressed it on a national level. So folks don't know that. All they mm -hmm. hear are the talking points of someone being undocumented. Right. It's been 20 years in this country. 20 years. Why haven't, why haven't they applied? Well, because they're not allowed to. 
Right. It's actually against the law to apply. So they're actually lawful abiding citizens or residents of this of this country that haven't had the opportunity, not because they don't want to, but because it's not part of the law. Right. So I think what we face in this country is a generational um, immigration issue. And so I love a quote um, by John Adams, one of our founding fathers of this nation, um, who, and, and it deals with the issue of education as well. And he said, I must study politics and war so that my sons may have liberty to study mathematics and philosophy so that their sons can study painting, poetry, and music. So we are the first generation that has studied politics so that our children can study something else and that their children can eventually benefit from the struggles that we've had. And the thing about the immigrant community or, or in California, Arizona, Nevada, and Texas is that we are all border states, maybe not Nevada, but in general, that we'll always see an influx of Latin American right. immigrants into our state. So we'll always have first generation. This is something that perhaps is not dealt with in other states, but that we will always see, which is why we have to tell these stories, which is why we have to normalize the narrative, which is why we have to continue to advocate and not forget where we come from. Um, when we got here in the late 70s, the law was different. So my sister Sylvia was born in, the, in El Paso. And so Sylvia, so when we got here, uh, we were undocumented till I was 13. And the reason we were able to, to uh, fix our status was because Sylvia was born in El Paso. Even though at the time she was, I think, six by now, um, we were able to apply for residency through Sylvia because she was a resident or a citizen of the United States. The law has changed since then. So, so if we were around um, now, we wouldn't have been able to apply. So with Sylvia, she was able to fix our status. We went back to the embassy, asked for a pardon, went through this process. Now uh, the citizens uh, can't apply for their families until they're 21 years old and can um, pr prove their income and that they were able to able to support the family. So I felt lucky because if they were any time after that law changed, then we wouldn't have been able to apply. But because the law hadn't changed at the time we applied and became citizens, I became, I, like I spoke earlier, I became a citizen in 94. My sister uh, Susan became a citizen after that and basically you know, just forced my parents to apply for citizenship. And thankfully they, they were, uh, they became citizens. And I remember talking to my mom and my mom's like, I'm like, mommy, aplica. And she's like, for what? You know, she's all like, what? And I remember back in the early 90s saying, porque, ¿qué tal si llega un loco? And that's exactly my word. Si llega un loco y decide que residents are no longer, you know, able to, to, to be in this country. And, you know, and I, I, I spoke Spanglish, but yeah. what that means is that some crazy person's going to come and decide that uh, being a resident is no longer good anymore, that only citizens are allowed to stay. And so at the time I was like, ay, estás loca, that's not going to happen. But then when Trump got elected, you she was like, know. when Trump got elected, <laughs> she goes, oh, my God, ya llegó loco. You know, and I was like, well, thank God that she became a citizen. They became citizens way back. And there's so many people that are um, waiting to be allowed into this country that have, how they say, put in the paperwork, right? right? That may not be allowed any longer because of the policies that this president is putting into effect. People that have put in their applications, that have paid the dues, that have paid the fees, that are from certain countries that will not be 
allowed in. Even though they've been waiting in the proverbial Even line. in the yeah. proverbial line. Uh, I want you to, Ms. Rubio, read this headline. It was on a national publication when your story about uh, that you shared on the assembly floor um, uh, started to become uh, widely covered. If, if you don't mind, can you read that headline? Oh. And tell me what makes you think. It was amazing. It says, Blanca Rubio was deported in grade school. Now she's a California State Assemblywoman. And there's a picture of, of me sitting down with some of my actual students. They're, they're, we're at a park, and it was a campaign photo, but these kids were actually my students. And I just, it, it's, well, first of all, I was on Elle magazine, which I never in my life thought that I would ever make it to Elle magazine because I do not look like the Elle magazine models. Um, so to be featured here was a, just amazing in itself. It's amazing to, to be able to, to sit here and tell you this story and, and to have that office in that big white building in the middle of the park. I, uh, now there's five siblings. There was four for a long time. My brother was a change of life baby, we call it him, because uh, my mom was 45 and my dad was 51, but my brother is actually in active service right now. Um, he's a, a member of the U.S. Army and was just... Um, we're, I'm trying to minimize the impact on our family, but he was just sent to Qatar uh, to serve for a year. And to see, or for people to see that not only are my siblings, my sister and I teachers were uh, elected officials, my other sister works for the city of Carson, my, my brother works in, Can he lives in Kansas, and now my little brother is a member of the U.S. Army. As an immigrant family, we are contributing to the whatever uh, area that you think of of the either the economy, the the armed forces. Now, uh, with my brother serving, we are contributing members of society, just like everybody else. You are the average American family. The average American family. My 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 kids and I. You know, we pray every night, and every night my daughter and my son pray for my brother. Uh, they say. Dear Lord, please take care of my Uncle Brian. He is brave for serving in the Army, and he's far away from us. And we don't know what may happen to him, but please take care of him. I mean, to be able to say that after what we've been through, now we have to worry about my brother. But he's doing it proudly. He's doing it because this is his country. Uh, fortunately, or I don't know if unfortunately for him, he never had to go through any of the struggles that we went through. He was a change of life baby, so we've already been here. So he was born in 92. We'd been here almost 20, God, almost 25 years by the time he was born. So he has no experience. Um, with any of the stories that I'm telling you, we drove by downtown L.A. just to show them where we used to live. We Six of us lived in a studio apartment in L.A. on 3rd and Bonnie Bray. Mm -hmm. And he was like, I have no idea what you're talking about. He didn't even live in L.A. He, he was uh, born, my parents live in Bell now. So he was born when we were already in Bell. So for him, it's a very different um, perspective but yet knows that the struggle for all of the, uh, the citizens or the non-citizens is the same, that if it wasn't for my parents uh, moving and you know, struggling to bring us here, that he wouldn't have the honor to serve in the U.S. Army. And that's a wonderful story, which is you know, a normal story, as you were saying, Ms. Carrillo. So I, I want to thank you so much for sharing so much from your uh, private and personal lives. Mm -hmm. Ms. Carrillo, your final words. I would just say that when you have these experiences and now we have a seat at, at the table, I think it's important that we also not overly romanticize mm -hmm. the immigrant experience because it's very 
normal and common and is the experience of millions of people across the country. And that um, when we talk about DACA recipients, it's not just the valedictorian or the, the young person going to like this prestigious, prestigious college. Folks that are mechanics and waiters and bartenders and have everyday jobs are equally as important and their lives are equally as important. And so it's not of, of a model, immigrant model. It's about just how do we improve the lives of people every day. So um, I want to leave you with this quote that I just love so much. Um, it's a joint statement from the California legislative leaders uh, given on November 9th, 2016. And it says, California was not part of this nation when its history began, but we are clearly now the keeper of its future. And I'm just so honored and thrilled and just incredibly privileged to have been elected by the people of my district uh, to be a voice in this conversation, to be able to move and pass progressive legislative policies and agendas that help people across my district in the 51st and really across the state. And I hope that when we think about what this future of the country looks like, people do look west and they look to California to lead. And as California goes, so does the nation. Wonderful words to end this episode of Look West. We've been joined by Assembly members Wendy Carrillo and Blanca Rubio. I'm Pablo Espinosa. Thank you for listening.